As you grab your Bible, turn it to um, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, please. 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And let's put our eyes on verses 50 to 58 for this morning in our study. Now, it's the last message on Paul's theme of the resurrection. And so we're sort of bringing to a close um, this critical look an understanding of bodily resurrection. And next Lord's Day, we get right into chapter 16, and, and things are going to get a little practical, as Paul does at the end of his epistle, but there's a lot there as well. Now, not the resurrection of Jesus so much have we been studying, but the resurrection of all Christians someday. Listen, bodily Resurrection. I think we kind of maybe think of that and it sounds weird to us in some senses. Almost sci-fi. But the Bible is really clear about the glorification of our bodies. So what we're really talking about is what, what happens to our bodies when we die. You say, I, I know that. You know, they, there's a decomposition thing that happens. In fact, aren't we even told, to dust you shall return? So we know. Well, we're talking about down the road. And again, not just life after death, but death and the human body. You read... Hebrews 2, and we learned that one thing that all people have in common before they are saved is this. The fear of death. That is a commonality. Man apart from Christ fears dying. Oh, he could put up a good front. Sometimes you'll see people give up, you put up a good front. Because there are a lot of causes that maybe can make us feel like death is an honorable thing. And I suppose maybe the most honorable would be to give your life to take care of your family or your country. But I want you to understand something. There should be a fear of death for the unbeliever if you don't know Christ, your future won't be well. In fact, your time here on this earth will be extremely short compared to what will happen to you, where you will be eternally. When Jesus died on the cross, Hebrews 2.15 says, It was to free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In other words, he tells us all people before salvation were slaves to this one thing, the fear of death. And it says all their lives. Every day of every life. In other words, people are attached to their bodies. We're attached to this life, to things related to our physical frame. And you can see that and you can tell that. All the things that we do, we get so concerned. When you're living your life and all of a sudden your body starts doing different things. You wake up, you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That wasn't like that yesterday. What's going on? We're attuned, aren't we? We know. And our minds can go to some of the craziest places. And some of us live at WebMD dot whatever. I don't know if that's the best thing, right? I mean, you know, you ever do that and you look on there and you go, oh my, this could be the common cold or cancer of like stage nine or whatever that is, right? I don't know. This is, there's a gamut here. But along comes Jesus. And 
he dies for us and he is raised and there is bodily resurrection for him. And what we learned in our chapter, he then becomes the first fruits of a bodily resurrection for all who put their trust in him. That's exciting. Do you understand what that means? What it means is whatever happened to him, whatever he experienced, we will too later. Oh, man. That right now should make you tingly. Okay? That's exciting. What that means is that a person can go into the grave six feet below into that dirt. And if they go as a Christian, they will be guaranteed a glorified physical body later, one just like Jesus. We know people are attached to physical bodies because you see that at graveyards. I mean, you know, you go there and you see the flowers, you know, by the headstones. And you see the beauty there and you see respect and dignity. And that's a good thing. I mean, it's not just the memory of the person. It's a respect for the body, right? The physical aspect of the person. It's, and that's, it's what we know. It's how we understood them. And it's that kind of attachment that makes it so hard to believe in the teaching that comes along and says there is future resurrection for that body that went into the grave and is decaying and turning back into dust. And I think if you really, really struggle with that, at least in the practical way, go back and read Genesis chapter 1. And just remember how God made everything from nothing, right? He spoke it into existence. Now think about that. If God can create from nothing, I think that he can take little particles of whatever, something that's left around anywhere and do something. I don't think that's going to be that difficult for him. In fact, if he created all that we see with just Psalm 33, the the breath of his mouth, the words of his mouth, that's all it's going to take for him. And you're going to see in a moment. That's just later on. That's just what's going to happen. He could just say it and boom, it all comes all together as it needs to. Instantly. We sometimes like to think of God too much like ourselves. Oh, this is going to be hard for him. It's going to be a lot of work. You don't know our God. Then. Now, the body was always an issue for the church back then. You remember we talked a little bit about this. You had critics back then just like you do today. And you remember last week we told you the two directions they tend to go. The Greeks said the body is bad, you know, it's full of evil. And so the best thing would be, would be for us to be released from this, uh, from this, you know, tent to get out of this so that we can finally, you know, get attached into the cosmic deities of, of cosmic whatever that's out there and, and then finally be released to, you know, float around or whatever. You can let your imagination run like crazy with that type of stuff. And so their thinking was, why would you want to raise a human body with all the evil that's attached to the body? I mean, we should be wanting to get free from this thing. And they believe that you die and they get released and remain a saved spirit forever. And then you have the Jews. And, you know, they said, sure, there's a future resurrection, but it is God giving us back the bodies that we had. Okay, great. You did your time there. Now you've been dead for a while. Okay, resurrection. Go ahead. Let's, let's get back to it. And so 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul answering that. In fact, look at verse 12 to kind of see how he does this. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
Some among you, he says. I mean, they, these are people in that church. They've bought up this, this view. No resurrection of this body from the dead. And that's the Greek idea, right? How can this body get raised? I mean, why would God want to do that? And then in verse 35, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body? And that seems to be the Jewish idea. In other words, they're saying, okay, well, how does it happen? Okay, we've accepted that it's going to happen. Now tell us how. Because we're having a hard time with believing that. And that's a mocking question. They ask it in a mocking way. How are the dead raised with what kind of body? And, and those questions aren't from people wanting to know. That's, I mean, that's not curiosity. That's not hunger for knowledge. Those are the critics. Those are the, those are the doubters. And so what Paul has done is give several lines of um, kind of uh, his answer, his response, his reasonings for these critics, these doubters. The first one is the resurrection proofs. And he does that in verses 1 through 11. He's shown the pertinence of the resurrection and why it matters in verses 12 through 19. He's shown the potency of it. That is, what's, what's it all about? I mean, making it clear that Jesus Christ is king. That is, that it's all about his, his kingdom. And in other words, the resurrection and why it's important is in the kingdom, the Lord wants people with physical bodies that kind of correspond to the, the, what's going on. The glory that's happening. His glorified body. And so that's verses 20 through 28. And then the persuasion of the resurrection. And that, in, that, in that section we saw all the motivations that, that are there because the resurrection exists and is, and is true. All the motivations the resurrection gives us believers. Verses 29 through 34. And then last week, the paraphrase of it, that is the explaining of it. Here's how this is going to happen. Verses 35 to 49. And now we get the praise of it, or as it is there in your notes, the symphony of the resurrection. Verses 50 through 58. God's plan to resurrect all Christians with glorified bodies should make us all want to shout hallelujah. It should make us all want to worship. And that is the point of verses 50 through 58. It should raise the praise, right? Just lift us up. Why? Listen, because God is able to do what Romans 8 23 says, We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. When God does that, it releases a connection to His glory. Earlier in Romans 8, verse 18, the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, that's God's glory. Listen. And it is the glory that we'll even see when we see resurrected bodies. The redemption of the body. That's what Paul calls the resurrection of the body. Glory to be revealed to us. Now why would God make us glory receptors, radiators of that glory? Romans 8 again. Now listen, verse 31. What shall, what then shall we say to these things? Listen, the reason He will raise us up with glorified bodies is so we have something to say. What shall we say to these things? Well, how about praise? How about praise Him? How about Romans 8, 38, verse 39? For I'm convinced there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. You know, I kind of think that Romans 8, 38 and 39 is going to be a hymn that we, that we might sing in heaven as we're looking at each other and going, aren't you convinced now that nothing can separate us from the love of God? Look at this. Look at this. Huh? And then the glorified body. Look at this. It's in the context of Romans 8. It's talking about having a redeemed body. 
When God transforms our bodies, it will be so we can praise Him, so we can worship Him the right way. That's what we're talking about with the resurrection, with bodily resurrection. You could call it this, bodily transformation. He will transform these bodies. Now the last thing Paul has to tell us about the resurrection is really a reason to praise Him for it. And that is for because there's coming transformation. Three pieces to bodily transformation in the resurrection. First of all, let's look at the need for transformation. And these are three critical pieces here. Verse 50. Why do we need bodily transformation? Now listen. Notice. Not just getting our bodies back. Not even just getting new bodies. Verses 35 through 49. That's the whole point of the seed analogy, right? The seed goes into the ground. I mean, you think about that, right? You get that seed and it's out of, let's just say it's maybe a pepper seed. And it comes out and it's all fresh. You don't want to put it in the ground right away, do you? No, you let that thing dry up. You let that thing be at its almost dead state. And then you put it in the ground. And then what does it do? It just falls apart and decomposes. Well, that's not good. No, it's just what it needs to do. Then what? The water, sunshine... And that thing just gets thrusted up in all its growth and beauty. Glorious tree or plant. That's the analogy. The same composition when that seed becomes a tree or a plant, but completely different too. So there's an aspect of it that's same and there's an aspect of it that's different. Radically. That's why this word transformation is important. That's the idea of being made new. Now notice verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. You can't have the flesh and blood. That's going to be a very, very, very important statement in a moment. You can't have the flesh and blood. Because here's why that's an important statement. Because you might be led to thinking, so we have to die. No, not true. And I'll explain that in a moment. But flesh and blood cannot inherit. There's something about flesh and blood that just can't go in. We've got to be transformed. In this life, like Adam, we are earthy, right? Verse 47, he said that. And then you get to verse 49, he says uh, similar, uh, a similar thing. When he says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And when we get transformed, and then we can be fit for the heavenly. See? And what he's saying is that for us to get there, that kind of place, we need to be changed. Heaven can't take you as an earthy person. We get changed then to match the dwelling place. That's the point. Changed to be like Christ, like His body. Now let's look at a few things here in this he says, flesh and blood. That's our bodies, okay? The physical body. What a, this is what a, what's what a human is, right? The human is flesh and blood. You can see throughout the scriptures when it uses that phrase, flesh and blood, that's what it means. That's what it's referring to. Here's a human being. This is a human. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It has to be changed. The natural cannot enter the supernatural. It's like the wineskins. Remember that? The old cannot be put into the new. 
And what he's saying is, we cannot enter into heaven with these old bodies. It has to be transformed. You say, what about that phrase, kingdom of God? What are we entering into? What's that all about? Well, the simplest explanation is really the eternal state. The eternal state. Things with even, you know, just kingdom. A kingdom that were, I guess you could say, heaven brought down to this earth. The new kingdom on this earth. And what he's saying is, when we get our resurrection bodies, it will not be flesh and it will not be blood. You say, what will it look like? We don't know. But it's not going to need that kind of composition. It'll be something that could look like that, but not exactly that. Doesn't really spend time. I guess we don't need to know, right? Doesn't spend time telling us. But Jesus was like that during the 40 days after the resurrection. I mean, we're going to look different even though it's still the same you. He said, again, why do we need the bodily transformation? Remember verses 42 through 44? Sown in, what does it say? Corruption. Sown in weakness, sown in dishonor, sown naturally. And all of that has to change. What kind of change? The same kind as the difference between a seed and a tree. Just a tremendous change there. And that's hard to describe, but we understand what a big difference between a seed that has dried up and has decomposition to it. And, you know, you stick that thing in dirt and soil, and and sometime later, whatever God wants it, whenever God wants it to, it just grows up, right? It becomes that tree, and it is different. What what a neat exercise. I tell you what, parents, I would encourage you, do do the cup deal with your kids. You know, where you put the seed in there, and they can watch it grow. So many lessons, but here's one more for you, right? Where you get to show them, hey, this is like the resurrection coming. Transformation. And you know, beloved, the New Testament talks about this all the time. You might not have realized it. Oh, I'm going to run you through some stuff here. Paul's talking about it in Romans. Second Corinthians 5, he talks about it in Philippians 3. He talks about it in Titus 2. 13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Why so much excitement? Because Paul anticipates that transformation coming. He's looking for it. And what verse 50 says is is it has to happen. The bodies we have and all its connection to sin and weakness and dishonor, it needs physical transformation too. I like the, I love that actually. All of this is not just, right, wasted. He does something with it. And it's not just, you know, 2.0, right? I mean, the bodies we have, I mean, we, 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 we already, by the way, we already have the spiritual one, right? I mean, that's justification, that's positional. Ephesians 2, he says, you're already seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Union with Christ, that's imputation. We have that on the, on the inside. We have that in declaration. But the body is coming. You say, why would God waste any time on this body? Because he created it. I mean, remember what he said after he created He called it very good. You know, beloved, do you realize that that happened before he even put the breath of life into man? Very good. And it became something even more than very good after the breath of life. Just incredible. And he does that in Genesis Two, putting the breath of life. Listen, God doesn't want to waste his creation. He will not. He'll just transform it. 
and just transform it. That's why I don't get too worried about it. Say, we shouldn't waste. Shouldn't go out there and say, you know, we, we're not. We don't say, hey, go out, hug trees, and you know, be greed, and you know, ecology, all that kind of stuff. Listen, be stewards. Take care of what you have around you. We don't stress about that stuff because you know what? God is going to transform that. He's going to make that better. Someday, sin is ravaged. We live in a broken world, don't we? See, why is he going to do that? So he can show you how amazing he is. <laughs> That's, I don't, we, we try to worship him here, don't we? And I think we just don't realize just how amazing he really is. So we can say, wow, you're, you're worthy of worship. So there's the need. You believe in Jesus Christ, you die, you wait for the bodily resurrection with all the saints in heaven, glorifying Jesus Christ. And at this point, someone in the church is going to say, but what about those alive when Jesus comes back? The ones who don't get into the grave. What happens to those bodies that are still alive when Jesus comes back? And so we have the next point. Secondly, the moment of transformation. The moment of transformation. Verses 51 through 53. Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. First, he says, behold. Uh, that's uh, edu in the Greek. Uh, look, right? That's what that is. You know, uh, stop what you're doing and just open your eyes to this right now. That's what this word means. What, 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 what do you want me to see? I'm talking about a mystery. Now, the word mystery in the Bible doesn't mean something hidden from you that you cannot know. It means something that has been hidden in the past that now is being revealed to you. That's what he means. That's what is always meant in the New Testament by the word mystery, mysterion. What's the mystery that Paul is letting out of the bag? He says, we will not all sleep. Oh, got my attention. What does he mean by sleep? He's not talking about Z's. Talking about death here, okay? Kind of like, remember Lazarus? He sleeps, right? Jesus told the, told the men, come let us wake him up, right? Now what's going to happen? Verse 51. We shall all be changed. Paul says we, but he simply means any Christian alive when Jesus comes back. That's what he means by we. Now this is important though to see. He said we because of what Jesus said in Matthew 24 when he said no man knows the day nor the hour. Okay? We. In other words, it could be at any time. We call that imminent. His return is imminent. That means that it can happen at any time. Those believers alive when Jesus comes back will be changed. Every single believer alive. Now follow along that thought. He said flesh and blood cannot enter in. If you're alive and flesh and blood can't enter in, something has got to change. Right here. Every single believer alive, there has to be this change. You can't have the same old body. Now watch how this change works. Some sleep, that is, some are dead. They'll, they'll be changed and rise to meet the Lord, okay? And then some are alive and do not sleep, and that is, they're not dead yet, and they'll rise and get changed on the way up. See, how does all this happen? Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now we get a little more clarity to that mystery. What mystery? Listen, that a person could be alive on this earth at one moment and then be changed just like that from earth to the Lord's presence. Just like that. 
And in this case, given a resurrected body. You say, that sounds crazy. It does, but something like, something like this has happened before. You might say it sounds crazy, but listen, read your Bible. It's happened before. Why doubt the Lord? It happened to Enoch. It happened to Elijah. They walked with God and they were taken up. I mean, what happened to their bodies? Changed. Had to. See, how do you know that? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's, how, that's what I read. That's what I read. That's what it says. What changed, their, what changed their bodies? It was changed. What happened to their bodies? It was changed. We don't, we, it just, just like that, different. And in fact, he tells us how fast. This is the moment of transformation. He says, in the twinkling of an eye. You say, oh, so just kind of in a blink? No. I'm going to explain something here. And hopefully I'll make sense to you. I'll, hopefully that makes sense to me. All right, here we go. This word moment is the Greek term atomos. And it is where we get our English word atom from. The word atomos, A-T-O-M-O-S, means that which cannot be cut anymore. In other words, that which cannot be divided. The atom is that which is the smallest thing that cannot be divided. That's where it came from. That's where the... That's the, the, the etymology, if you will. And in this case, so, so unable to be divided. That's, that's what the word means. And in this case, it, it, it means it has to do with time. That particle or part of time that cannot be divided. It cannot be cut. cannot be reduced. What's that like? It's the twinkling of an eye. He tells us not the blinking of an eye, even quicker than that. The idea is it happens so fast that you don't realize it. There's a scientist guy who was trying to understand this. And he said the twinkling is the time that it takes for the light to go from the iris to the retina. Okay, got that? The time that it takes light to go from the iris to the retina. Now, see, what's that? Here we go. One-sixth of a nanosecond. Hmm. Okay? One-sixth of a nanosecond, right? So what's a nanosecond? Well, it's that thing when you want your kids to do something really quick. Hey, get your room clean. You do that thing in a nanosecond, right? What do you mean? Really fast. No, yeah, we have no idea what nanosecond means, so I got to help you understand this. All right. A microsecond is one millionth of a second. A nanosecond is one thousandth of a microsecond. The twinkling is going to happen in one sixth. Of that. Okay. That's fast, right? I don't even have any idea what that kind of speed is, right? That is very, that's speedy. It's faster than we could even imagine. And say, why say it like that? To help us understand just how amazing God is. I mean, listen, that for God, Change can happen fast. It can appear fast for us. For him, it's just normal. It's just what, who he is. No wonder with Enoch, it simply says this. Listen to this with Enoch. He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Can you tell us more about this journey? Like, what happened? Was he like, kind of like going? No, it just says he was not. Right? Imagine that. We'll be walking with God just living our lives, and then one-sixth of a nanosecond, gone. And he was not. That's all we can say about Enoch. Where is Enoch? Well, he's there, and then he's not, 
right? I mean, I don't know what to say. There's no, like, smoke or anything. I mean, there's nothing that tells us where he is and what happened. He's just not. That's what the moment of our transformation is going to be like. That is, those alive when Jesus comes back. You say you keep saying that, but how do you know that it is connected to when Jesus comes back? Oh, I'm so glad that you asked that. Let me show you. Turn for a moment to 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, this church had a question here in Thessalonica, but it's the opposite question of the church in Corinth. Okay. At Corinth, their question is, what about those alive? How does bodily resurrection work for those alive? And they were saying it mocking, mockingly, like there's no way this is real, right? And Paul says, oh yeah, it's real. And he's explaining that. At Thessalonica, their question is not so much about those alive, but they want to know about those dead. What about those already dead? Verse 13. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Again, those are the ones dead, right? Those uh, dead. Verse 15. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He says, hey, the dead go first. Okay? You say, why? We don't know. It's just how how the Lord wanted it, right? I mean, uh, maybe the last shall be first. I don't know. Maybe a sign to the ones that are alive, okay? Verse 16. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout. Now that's a part of his coming. But notice, he doesn't touch ground. He just shouts. See, what's he, what's he shout? We don't know. doesn't say. I mean, we know that with Lazarus, he just said, Lazarus. Come forth. I don't know, maybe with us, because we have all kinds of names. I mean, he just says, you know, come forth. I don't know. Arise. Something like that. But notice, it's, it's not even Jesus, right? It's, it's the shout with the voice of the archangel, right? So, ah. So he's told the archangel, hey, do your shouting now. So who's the archangel? Michael's called the archangel. It's probably Michael. Okay, And then it says, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the dead believers go first. Now you get to the trumpet part. Verse 52. 1 Corinthians 15 says at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, with the trumpet of God. And then you go to Revelation, and there's all kinds of trumpets, right? So we say, what? which one? What is this? Like, are there a series of trumpets? What is this? It's actually pretty simple. It tells us it's the last one, but he, it's not meant to be a statement of sequence. Understand that. The context actually tells us what it is. He isn't trying to tell us that this is the last trumpet to ever be blown. It is a trumpet related to the end of death. To end the Christian's struggle with death. This is really salvation from the presence of sin. And I say that because later on we're going to learn that sin is connected with death. And when death is removed, then it's just, man, it's the freest ever. Now, why did they blow trumpets back then, by the way? Many times they blew the trumpet to make an announcement in the city or town so they could gather the people for something important, right, that was going to be said. It was, it was also blown for military um, to kind of give, like you've got commands that are given, and the trumpet kind of accentuates that command. It clarifies, it helps them to know, okay, do this, don't do that, stop doing this, start doing that. But it was always, the idea of it is always assembly, to, to assemble. It was also blown to announce victory. So, put it all together. 
it was blown for assembly, for victory, for assembly, for festivity, or to celebrate some victory in battle, or blown to get you to come to some square for some announcement to be given. But to say it like one person said, a trumpet blast for the final summons. That's the idea. For the final summons, okay? Now let me give you a few passages from Scripture to see this thing rolled out. And I just want you to see this so that you can know this is not willy-nilly or strange or whatever. Remember Exodus 19, Israel's being put together as God's people. She's at Mount Sinai. You've got Moses there. And he calls, God called for Moses to gather all the people at the base of this mountain. All right, so how's this going to work? How will they know when it is time to gather? Well, they begin to see verse 16, thunder and lightning flashes and thick cloud. And it says, in a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And they knew at that point in time, it was time to gather. And they came trembling at the bottom of this mountain. And so the trumpet got the people together so God could speak to them and lead them. It was a, it was a summons. Isaiah 27, 13, in that day, the last day, the day of the Lord, the Lord will start his threshing and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel, and will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and so forth. And many will come to worship the Lord, it says, in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So God uses the trumpet to gather his people. And we learn from Isaiah 27, he's going to use it at the end time. To get them to come together. So put it all together. Someday the Lord will have a trumpet blasted out loud, right? And the dead in Christ will rise up to him. And that will be that trigger for that. And they'll get resurrected bodies. And then those alive will meet him in the air. Why? Follow the deal here to get resurrected bodies. That's First Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Why? To get resurrected bodies. He said, but can a resurrected body be up there? Jesus did. Can I have the same body as his? So the answer is what? Yes. That's the transformation. That's the moment of it. And it will be a change faster than a nanosecond. Okay? You say, does the Bible support transformation by resurrection anywhere else? John 14. Mark it down. Jesus told his disciples about it just before the cross. Verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, he says, trust my words. Why, why say that? Because what I'm about to tell you is going to be hard to imagine. It's going to be hard for you to believe. Trust my words. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. In other words, many rooms. You know the versions that say mansions? That's not right. You don't have lots of mansions everywhere. Does That makes no sense. It's rooms. That's how they lived back then anyway. Lots of space to live. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you... I will come again and receive you to myself. That is literally the picture of 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. That where I am, there you may be also, and what is implied, like me, with a glorified body. Here's another one, Acts 
1 verse 9, after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. Jesus is ascending there. In verse 10, the disciples just stood there gazing into the sky. Verse 11, two angels said this to the men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, this same one, this same Jesus, this resurrected bodied, glorified Jesus, glorified Messiah, who has been taken up from you into heaven. Listen, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. How do they watch him go? Up in the air. And he's going to come back down in the air. And we're going to meet him. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Listen, we're not looking for an event. We're looking for a person. All these people that are like, oh, you know, I'm watching the times and everything and I'm calculating and I'm looking at all this and trying to, what are you doing? All that stuff, read Matthew 24. He says it's just going to happen as it's going to happen. But we're not looking for all these, we're trying to make a science out of this. Just looking for, I just need to see one person. And that's when I know. Let's go. And of course, a lot of good that's going to do that way at that point in time, because it's a nanosecond, so you know, it's less than one. I don't know. But he does say looking, right? Looking. Right? Oh, Jesus, come quickly. Come today. Come now. Right? That's what 1 Corinthians 15.52 is telling us. And then to remind them, verse 53, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. To put on immortality is like an outfit to be transformed and given a body ready for glory. See, Glorified body, resurrected body. Now we get to the point of what happens next. The truth about the moment of transformation should trigger all kinds of results. And so point number three the results of transformation. Now the overall result is victory. And that victory involves four great things that sort of form a linked uh, fortress, if you will. And what is happening is we're finally defeating death. Finally getting rid of death. Four great results. First of all, a great proclamation. A great proclamation. I love this one. Verse 54. The first result is something great is proclaimed. Uh, This is our great statement. Look at it in verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. In other words, death is gone. That's our proclamation. Hey, everybody, death is gone. And this is a dramatic proclamation. I mean, you see the trigger? When and then. When this happens, then this will happen. It's almost as though this is connected to the trumpet blast. You get the blast and then you get the proclamation, right? Death is gone. Now this is a quote from Isaiah 25 verse 8. This is Paul using scripture to affirm the message that he's teaching. I've been teaching you this and now I want to give you a verse to kind of undergird everything I've taught you. Isaiah 25 8 says he will swallow up death for all time. Paul says that time is now. The proclamation then is, is this. What God promised about death is happening right now. The word swallow has to do with total destruction in in Isaiah's passage there. This is the total end to death. It's like death is sucked into the giant black hole of eternity, right? Just go away, right? I think about what, he, what, what this is saying. It's, it's drama. It's intense. It's a proclamation. Today, it isn't like that. Right? Today, 
Enemy is a death. Excuse me, death is an enemy. Today, death runs rampant. It impacts everyone and acts like a tyrant. Death is a bully today. Callously steals bodies and brings emotion to people and tears and depression and confusion and anger and it ruins plans and it is impartial, taking the old as well as the young. I love this quote from John MacArthur on this point when he says, in other words, death is not just defeated from doing any more harm. Everything it's ever done is undone. Death is swallowed up forever. End quote. Do you love that? Everything it's ever done is undone. And that's the point of what he's saying. That quote came as a response to R.C. Linsky. Here's what Linsky says. Death and all of its apparent victories are undone for God's children. What looks like a victory for death and like a defeat for us when our bodies die and decay shall be utterly reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our bodies live again in absolute victory. End quote. So that's the first great result of great proclamation. Next, Paul taunts death, and there's a reason. So this next one, a great imputation. A great imputation. Verses 55 to 56. Look at verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul is, he's still quoting scripture here. Now he's quoting Hosea 13, 14. And actually, it's a paraphrase, really. It's not even an exact quote. In, Isaiah, in Hosea thirteen fourteen, it says, Where are your plagues? Where's your destruction? But I like the fact that, I mean, this is the Holy Spirit teaching us here, using, using the, the idea of Hosea thirteen fourteen to tell us this. Now, the word for sting has to do with bees or snakes or even scorpions. What is the sting of death? Where was the sting planted? Well, it has killed all of us, but its stinger, death put its stinger right into Christ on the cross. Oh, death, where is your sting? He tells us where it is in verse 56. It is in Christ as he took it for you. That's what's meant by imputation. That's why I use the word imputation. How did that stinger get into Christ? Galatians 1, when he bore our sins on the cross. This is an imputation point. You say, are you sure? Yeah, look at verse 56. The sting of death. Death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. There is death, and that's a sting, but the actual venom of that sting came from sin. Genesis 2, God told Adam, if you disobey my command, dying you'll die. In other words, you're going to carry a death sentence on you. And everybody that comes after you will carry that same sentence How do you know sin is real? Because people die. And so you need an answer for sin. Sin is imputed. It will be imputed to you, he says. How do we know that sin will be potent to kill? Because of the law. It uses the law to make the venom stick. Now let me make this point here based on these verses. Death isn't what harms us. Catch that? Death isn't the big deal. The poison is in the sin. Sin is that which harms Death has no sting if there's no sin. 
Didn't Paul say, 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? Philippians 1, he says, don't know which to choose, to die, go be with the Lord, or be here for you. So what happens if that sin, by the way, is forgiven and if it is covered? Then the venom goes away. It has no sting. It has no ability to cause that for you. So many people in the world that have not believed, not put their trust in Christ, and they carry this venom in them. They don't believe you that they are dying. If there is sin, then death is fatal. Death is the final deal for you, unbeliever. And the next thing for you is judgment for that sin. You have to have the sting removed. And there's only one who has taken your sting, your venom, Jesus Christ on the cross, right? So many great verses on forgiveness of sins. Matthew 9, Jesus told that guy, your sins have been forgiven you. Son of man has power to forgive sins. Why? Because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away the sting, the venom of the world, put into us to kill us. Ephesians 1 7, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Romans 8, who shall bring a charge against my elect, the Lord says. This is an imputation point. Do you see it? I mean, what if you're not a Christian? Then death has the right to kill you because you have the venom of sin in you. You, you have this, this thing in you. You've given death the right to sting you and give to you a crushing, fatal blow. Okay? You say, but what about the law business? I mean, what if I just try hard to keep the law? What's it say? The power of sin is the law. So what's that mean? Well, let's think of it this way. Law. God has principles, right? He has a standard. That's His righteousness. His righteousness manifested to us through the law. Now, that means we are called to obey it. And by the way, the reason why you don't obey it is because of sin. James 2.10, you violate one of them and you're guilty. You say, but what if a person has never read the Bible? What if they don't know God's law? Romans 2, he says it's written on their heart. Their conscience tells them when they disobey God. That's why an unbeliever doesn't have to be taught not to murder or steal or cheat or lie or commit adultery. He knows on the inside that's wrong. We know it's wrong. Okay, so how do you get out of that? Jesus Christ came to take the penalty of your sin on the cross. He came to get stung for you. He came to take the venom. And when you place trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, you do that. That He took your sting for you. And God promises to give you what you don't deserve. New life. Isn't that good? John MacArthur Quote, death is swallowed up forever for the one who is the promised, who has the promise of resurrection in Christ. End quote. Amen. There's a third result. We call this a great thanksgiving. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here is Paul just full of praise and thankful heart. Why? Jesus Christ gave us the victory. We have triumphed through Christ. Why? He paid the penalty for us and He took our sting. He died our death. That we deserved, He did it to give us life that we don't deserve. Jesus Christ causes us to have victory. Tremendous thought. 
This is Romans 7.24 or Galatians 3.13 where Christ became a curse for us. This is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore it is no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. This is the basis for our praise and our worship. We worship because this has happened. Our, our resurrection is secured because this has happened. Romans 1, right? It says, the evidence that we are not believers is that we refuse to offer thanks to God. As believers, we're thankful for the salvation that He alone gives, right? We're thankful because like Revelation 20 says, we know that death will be thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21 says, we know that death will eventually be no more. And so Christians should be the most thankful people on earth. One last point here. A great ramification. A great ramification. Verse 58. So in light of all those truths, how should a Christian respond? Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not... In vain in the Lord. He's really saying two main things here. One, be immovably true. And two, work hard. That's it. This is how we live. And you could add a third, I guess, knowing that that work is, is not empty. Notice um, the word always. Because the resurrection is true for Jesus Christ. It is true for us, for our future, for our future resurrected body. And because of that, be immovably true. You think about those two things, and I really believe we get weakened as believers in those two areas more than any other. I mean, we all struggle with commitment, don't we? And maybe we start out of the gate strong, but then sin keeps slapping you in the face and you struggle. Or maybe serving Christ by serving His saints becomes so routine to you and familiar to you. And so He says, stand fast. Be consistent. Stay in the commitment. Oh, that that would be said, right, of all saints here at GBC, that we are committed, that we demonstrate commitment. The word for immovable means to be solid and fixed. That we're fixed in that. Solid in that. The word is the opposite of always in motion. Instead, we're to be grounded, anchored. Ephesians 4, we're not to be tossed to and fro in the waves of, waves of doctrine. Our lives can look like that sometimes. Or like Matthew 11, remember swinging back and forth from the dirge life to the party life. He says, you, you may be, you said, hey, sing a dirge for us. We're depressed. We're down. Hey, let's, let's go party. Sing a happy tune. Let's party. And you go back and forth from the dirge to the party. Have you noticed that in your life? It's kind of that way. And he wants us to live right here. That's an immature person, by the way, that lives like that. James 1, a double-minded, unstable in all your ways person. The second one, always abounding in work. I mean, two words that are helpful. The word always. And boy, we are really into taking breaks these days, right? Oh, I, need, I just need a vacation. I just need some rest. I just need relaxation. Some me time. Not Paul. He says, always labor. Always labor. Always. Why do people always try to talk us into, by the way, relaxing? Right? What is that? Hey, you just need to relax. I think he just says always laboring here. He says always laboring. I didn't make this up. Same word, by the way, that describes God's grace for us. Super abounding. That's what our work should look like. You see, but sometimes they get tired. We have brothers and sisters help each other. Go take a nap, come back, get right back at it, right? And I tell you what, we get so super energized when we know we're doing the right things and we have the Spirit of the Lord in us 
just encouraging us. We're to be David Brainerd type of workers. He died before the age 30. Go read his journal and diary. Oh my, I can only do that thing in doses because it's so humbling to me. How much work he was. He was ashamed of the little amount of work that he was doing. I don't know that I do an ounce of what he did. John Knox, give me Scotland or I die. I want the whole thing. It's going to take a lot of work, John. I don't care. I'll die if I don't have this. But how can you temper that? I mean, it can be discouraging when you don't see the fruit and you just exhaust, exhaust yourself. The end of verse 58, knowing that your toil is not empty in the Lord. God sees it. He will make it produce. Because we know what's coming for us believers. This great resurrection. We stand true and we work hard. And then we just praise the Lord. And then we give money. You say, where did that come from? Well, that's chapter 16, believe it or not, the next two verses. I don't know. I just thought I'd throw that in there. But that's coming. <laughs> uh, we'll figure out how that connects to what we just learned. Just wanted to do that for you to get you a head start. Um, boy, I tell you what, what a glorious resurrection in Christ there is in a future that we have that awaits us. Huh? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you, Father, for giving us so much. You, as always, overgive us, overgive us. And even if we were to do what you say, take up the cross, die to the self, take up the cross, come and follow you, we probably will only do that in moments. And it doesn't look like this continuous stream, oh Lord. Forgive us for that, Father. And I pray help us to be those people that um, that will praise and worship you in the way that is spoken of that Paul did here. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. We love you, Lord. Amen.